Lauren. Mike. Lauren, have you ever been correctly identified by facial recognition technology? I mean, I think I have been because I use an iPhone and when I go to the airport, I use a service like Clear, which mm-hmm. zeroes in on your irises, which mm-hmm. is kind of bizarre. But I don't think, I think what you're asking is have I been identified by some kind of like governing body or agency by my face for yes. something. And not that I'm aware of. I mean, maybe I have, but not that I'm aware of. Has anybody ever knocked on your door and said, we know you were here because our computer vision saw you there? No. Has that happened to you? It has not yet. Okay. I'm sure it will soon. It's also increasingly common because mm-hmm. law enforcement is ramping up its use of facial recognition technology to ID suspects around the United States, and it is not always accurate. Yeah, we should talk about that. We will. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. We're also joined this week by Wired senior writer Kari Johnson. Kari, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course, in person, no less. Oh, my gosh. You flew through the night to be with us today. I did. <laughs> Kari's first Gadget Lab appearance, and hopefully the start of many. So you're probably all aware that facial recognition technology is becoming more widespread and is being used in a variety of applications. Today, we're going to talk about facial recognition technology and how it's being used in law enforcement. Just like a lot of tech solutions to complex problems, facial recognition algorithms are not perfect. But when the technology is used to identify suspects in criminal cases, those flaws in the system can have catastrophic, life-changing consequences. People can get wrongly identified, arrested, and convicted, often without ever being told that they were ID'd by a computer. And it's especially troubling when you consider that false identifications disproportionately affect women, young people, and people with dark skin, basically everyone other than white men. Kari, in your recent reporting, you've talked to three people, actually all three are black men and all three are fathers. These guys were all arrested and falsely accused of serious crimes because of the police's over-reliance on facial recognition technology. What were the issues that stood out to you the most in these three men's cases that you wrote about? I mean, I guess I would start with Robert Williams. Um, Both of his young daughters watched their dad get arrested on their front lawn, and that negatively impacted them in a number of ways. That's detailed in the article. Niger Parks had to talk with his son for the first time about how to act around police you know, the sort of talk, this sort of Mm. negative um, tradition that exists in this country for, you know, people of of African descent of how to conduct yourself around police. He had to have that talk with his son at the same time as talking about his false arrest. You know, you think of the personal relationships that it touched, the interpersonal relationships in their lives, how these arrests sort of rippled through their lives in different ways. Um, is, I think, really important to note. And part of looking at artificial intelligence and the use of algorithms uh, beyond uh, maybe what you see on paper, I think. Um, If you look at any of these cases, I think it's easy to see that there was some sort of violation of constitutional rights. And that's, of course, very serious. And denying people their freedom is definitely really high on the list of some of the most harmful ways that an algorithm can harm a person, but also that violation, you know, touched their lives in different ways. You know, Niger Parks was um, 
uh, transferring money, I think, to his fiance at the time. Mm. You know, when police said that he was stealing something from a hotel gift shop in New Jersey, and he's no longer with his fiance, in part due to some of the issues that they had surrounding these accusations. Mm. I, I just think it's really important in in learning about each of their lives after the arrest uh, to to note that it touched the people around them and their relationships with people close to them as well as e- each of these things related to their uh, civil rights and um, their rights as citizens in the United States. And your story not only highlights some of the um the catastrophic consequences that these these men have suffered in their lives and some of the personal issues that have come up as a result of these false arrests. But ultimately, your story raises the question about this crash, this collision of like what happens when humans are using new or emerging technology um, to, to do their jobs. And in this case, it's law enforcement. Um, and I'm wondering what these stories you know, tell you or tell us about who is ultimately liable when something like this goes wrong. Is it the tech itself? I mean, it, like in the case of Niger Parks, um, who your story details, he spent 10 days in jail after being wrongfully accused of shoplifting from a gift shop in New Jersey. He eventually filed a lawsuit in federal court um, in Jersey against the director of the police department, local officials, and Idemia, which is the company that made the facial recognition system. So my question is, um, is it Idemia that ultimately will end up, you know, paying damages in this case if it, if it goes that way? Or like what happens to the people who are deploying the tech? I don't have a full answer to that. I don't think that my reporting goes as deeply into answering that question. Idemia didn't respond to any questions. Uh, these are the first cases of their kind. And so I think the outcome of the cases will in some way uh, weigh on who's held responsible or who's considered liable, I suppose. Um, the, uh, I believe the Oliver, Michael Oliver complaint requests that a judge rule that the technology not be used until some of the issues around its ability to discriminate against certain groups are resolved. For example, um, that could slow its use, but it wouldn't uh, necessarily assign blame. Right. I mean, it seems like it's a bad idea if you work in law enforcement to deploy tech that we know is flawed. And as a result of it being flawed, people are going to be wrongfully accused for crimes. I mean, it just it seems like those are humans making those decisions. And it's humans building the AI, right, that powers these systems. Building the, they're humans building the AI and it's humans who are making the policy for how the AI should be used and applied mm-hmm. in investigations and where, you know, you set the quality standards. You know, you can decide to set the confidence level for the search results for a facial recognition, you know, system uh, into the like 98 or 99 percent, you know, accuracy rate. Or you can drop them down to 50 and see mm-hmm. what happens. You know, <laughs> uh, there are. Some jurisdictions that, you know, some of the lawyers we've spoken with or uh, researchers who have tried to follow and document the use of the technology by law enforcement, they've documented that in some instances, if the search returns no results and you chose, let's say, a 90% confidence you know, threshold, that they would be allowed after that to drop it to like 80%, for example, and see what comes back. That seems like the sort of thing that if I was a criminal defense attorney, 
I'd really want to know that. Mm -hmm. And I'd really want to make sure that that was like something that you could argue about in court or at least certainly bring, let's say, an expert in to, to challenge. But you can't do that because facial recognition is treated as an investigative tool instead of evidence. And since it's treated as an investigative tool, the photo of the person that they believe committed the crime that was identified by the facial recognition is then showed to an eyewitness. So the eyewitness is relied on at trial and the entire accusation can go forward without ever mentioning facial recognition. Yeah, this is one of the shocking things that I learned from your story, that police and prosecutors, they're not required to tell a suspect when facial recognition tech was used to ID them. So essentially, they're, the the use of the technology is being papered over by hiding it behind a person who looked at a photo mm-hmm. that was picked out from uh, a database or maybe a photo that was generated by an AI in some cases, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the process for facial recognition um, use, as you were saying, there's the one-to-one type thing that you can get with ID.me mm-hmm. or uh, with your iPhone. That's a different type of uh, facial recognition. Uh, the kind that's used in criminal investigations is referred to as a one-to-many system. So mm-hmm. it can take a single photo, which typically an investigation comes from, let's say, security camera footage. Investigators go to a business, let's say, that's been robbed. They take a photo of that. Uh, from that security camera footage, and then they run it through a facial recognition system. And that can return hundreds of results. And those results are then shown to a facial recognition like analyst that works with police. And they get to decide. The human at that point takes over the process and decides who's identified. And so that can present some challenges as well because uh, misidentification is considered one of the primary issues that leads to wrongful convictions according to the Innocence Project. Mm -hmm. Uh, And people are also less adept at identifying people from different race groups. So there are different parts of that process of using facial recognition in a criminal investigation that a lot of people who are concerned with it, um, say, can present uh, challenges or bias. All right, let's take a break and come right back. As we've been learning, facial recognition technology is being used more and more to assist law enforcement in the United States, even though those systems are saddled by imperfections that can lead them to falsely identify suspects. Now, Kari, you you briefly referenced a report from the Georgetown Center on Privacy and Technology, and among the many things that that group at Georgetown Law has has uncovered is the fact that half of U.S. adults are now in a facial recognition database. Um, that is a stat that they surfaced in 2016, so that was like five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are we now with the number of faces that are in this database that they use to identify people. Yeah. So I think it really depends on how you measure that. Mm -hmm. So there's like the federal approach and there's uh, the FBI has agreements with, I think, 20 something different states. And that allows them access to uh, driver's license photos. And so that system, um, I believe, makes up a large part of what they're talking about with the one and two. But each state uh, has their own system as well, or different states have their own systems as well. Mm. And in places like, let's say, uh, Pennsylvania, there are, I think, roughly 13 million people 
uh, but their photo database that they use for facial recognition includes 38 million faces. How, is, how, how does that work? <laughs> like glasses on, glasses <laughs> off, beard, no beard. I dyed my hair brown. I dyed my hair blonde. <laughs> yeah, fake mustaches. Yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I don't really know. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, Michigan has a similar thing where there's, I think, uh, 10 million people and 53 million photos in their database. Wow. In the SNAP database. So, I mean, different states have large photo databases to scan. Um, and then there's Clearview, which has a database, it's my understanding of about 3 billion photos. And so, I mean, that's what prompted these accusations that Clearview's emergence was in effect the end of privacy. And uh, I think it's Drew Harwell at the Washington Post has done some good reporting in the last month or so, you know, pointing to a you know, pitch deck from Clearview that saying basically that they want to include photos of effectively everybody on the planet. So, mm. you know, there's that ambition, I guess. Yeah. Certainly they're banned in some places. But this is this is largely unregulated right now? Yeah. It's wild to think about. There were some efforts to try and regulate it uh, in Congress, I think, dating back to 2018. The House Oversight and Reform Committee picked it up and was looking at putting some limits on law enforcement use of facial recognition technology. It, it actually brought together uh, fervent Trump supporter Jim Jordan and um, Elijah Cummings, a congressman from Maryland, who was inspired in part to begin looking at this, I believe, due to the use of facial recognition technology in protests against the death of Freddie Gray, a black man who was killed by police in Baltimore, I think in 2015. Unfortunately, uh, Elijah Cummings passed away, I think a year or two ago, and a lot of that stuff hasn't made progress. Either that effort or other efforts by Congress to regulate facial recognition talk technology haven't really gone anywhere. So most of the policy solutions to this are being approached at the state level. So to bring it back to what we talked about um, more in the first half of this episode, I mean, the problem is that this technology is often, it doesn't work as intended, right? And that has real life terrible consequences for people. Um, how does that actually work? Like if this were to be regulated in some way, is it possible that it would not only be regulated at the level of how it's deployed, but also there would be regulations around how it's built? Because we know like with AI and machine learning, there's that phrase, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You give a bad data, the output could be wrong too, right? Talk about like how that actually works technically. Explain it for for the people of our audience and like how that should maybe change so that these kinds of things don't happen. What well, I should say that we we don't really know how accurate it is in practice. Um, I think there's a comparison to be made between the real world case perform, you know, real world performance of this technology and what we know in laboratory settings. We know that in laboratory settings, it has improved in its ability to identify people greatly within the last couple of years. It's even apparently for some reason better at identifying people from the side, which I didn't know we were doing. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's a thing. Um, I learned that. But it, it, that difference of, of those two different things of uh, the real world use case in the in the deployment in a laboratory, I think is, is important to, to note. The other really important thing is even if it's the best facial recognition algorithm, once you use a low quality image, it can greatly reduce 
the accuracy of results. So even the best algorithm is going to be diminished by a poor photo used as the input. No matter how the, the, the artificial intelligence was trained, whatever data was used for it, that's something that I think a lot of makers of this technology are still struggling with and, and haven't been able to address. But so far as garbage in, garbage out goes, uh, if you give uh, a training, every artificial intelligence model uses training data to make a quote unquote smart decision or determination. And that comes from in, in the training data, if it is representative, can accurately identify people, for example. Uh, but if the training data doesn't have uh, people from different walks of life, then you're going to have uh, biased results. Uh, this was demonstrated most notably by the Gender Shades Project in 2018. It's extremely important to note that we probably wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for that particular work by mm -hmm. two black women, uh, Timnit Jebru and uh, Joy Bulemwini. And there's uh, wasn't certainly an overrepresentation of white men that they were able to identify. And I believe NIST studies have found similar results. The National Institute for Standards and Technology, which mm -hmm. has also studied this in the Department of Commerce. So basically, if these systems are trained predominantly on images of white men, then that is going to create higher accuracy uh, rate for images of white men versus people of color, women, children, um, underrepresented groups in the training data sets. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. But I think there's, you know, as I was saying, um, the, the, the quality of a photo can impact mm -hmm. it. Uh, the other thing is uh, people's faces change as they age. Mm -hmm. So the when the photo was taken uh, can impact uh, the results, you know. So there's, there's different uh, influencers like that that uh, can contribute as well. You, you could make the argument that no matter how good the technology gets, no matter how much attention we pay to having proper societal representation in the data set, training the AI to recognize people better, it's probably not going to change a lot of the problems that we're talking about because we are still, you know, we have a, uh, a cultural resistance, a political resistance towards holding police accountable for their decisions. We have legal protections mm -hmm. where the police don't have to tell you that, that uh, facial recognition was used to ID you so you can't properly defend yourself in court. We have humans verifying the accuracy and uh, asking human witnesses, and those humans have you know, you know, historically demonstrated that they have a harder time recognizing people who have darker skin. And then we also just have the you know, preponderance of, of cases that we see where um, black and brown people are prosecuted for crimes at higher rates and arrested at higher rates than non-black and brown people, right? So it's like all of those things aren't going to change. And if the if the technology is quote unquote perfect or it's perceived as perfect, then it becomes possibly even like a, a deadlier weapon in that regard, right? Yeah. Yep. 
So, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't, you know, mean to show up with all the negativity, but like, this is a very complex problem. And it's something that I think, you know, when we talk about these things, we, we always, it being a technology publication, we always tend to lean on like, well, you know, it's the technology that's bad and it's leading to these problems. But mm -hmm. in, in this particular case, it's, you know, we've, we've made it very clear. You've made it very clear at the start that like, you know, the, it's not that the technology is bad and we have these problems. It's that the whole system is bad and mm -hmm. the system is relying on this imperfect technology, which just sort of strengthens the power of the system. It strengthens all of the problems that are already there. Yeah. I mean, one of the conversations that I had was with uh, somebody who helped create facial recognition policy for a police department in Virginia. And he was um, Christopher Quinn. He has a background in supervising investigators in, in criminal investigations. He believes that it can be used um, effectively in cases, but also that the disclosure needs to be there. Mm -hmm. um, but he talked about the idea of sort of a CSI effect for uh, facial recognition and the idea that investigators are expecting the technology to be there the same way that people might have juries or other people involved with investigations 20 years ago and might have felt that way about DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. The difference in this is the forensic evidence. It might be a bit more difficult to collect than a screenshot from a security camera. Right. So it can be the prevalence of it in people's lives can be much higher. And um, to mm -hmm. your point, all of these other things in society, even if the technology was absolutely perfect, still means that it could have negative outcomes or disproportionate outcomes in certain communities. Well, Kari, thank you for being here and for walking us through all of this. Uh, it's very heady. So thanks. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for writing those stories. They're really mm -hmm. great. Everybody should thank go you. to wired.com and read them. We will, of course, link to them in the show notes. Uh, we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and do our recommendations. All right. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. Kari, this is your first time on the, on the show. Indeed. Uh, so you, you you are new to this and we apologize for springing this on you. But we at the end of the show, we do recommendations mm -hmm. uh, where we ask our guests and then we as the hosts also recommend things that our listeners might be into. They can be uh, something that is in the wired world. Uh, often they are things that are outside of the wired world. So as our guest, you get to go first. Mm -hmm. what is your recommendation of a thing that our listeners should check out? I'm going to be honest with you. I got, uh, I got pretty deep into a hoagie on the way over here <laughs> and that. it's been a while <laughs> and we're, uh, we're not talking about like fancy, no aioli, no, like, you know, <laughs> top and odd. No, I don't think so. I mean, we're talking about like lettuce, <laughs> is it meat. turkey? There was turkey. It was mm -hmm. peppered turkey. Mm -hmm. Basic. It was basic chic sandwich. Where did you get it? Fred Myers. Fred Myers. And and you say on the way over here, you mean like walking down Third Street? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wasn't sure if you meant like on your flight this morning. I'm like, wow, sandwiches are back on planes. No. There is a great pleasure in a giant sandwich. <laughs> yeah. It had been a while. Yeah. So I'm gonna Yeah, I'm gonna confidently recommend hoagies. I respect that you called out Aoli in particular. There was this tweet that went viral earlier this week where someone said like they really just took some mayonnaise and added some flavor to it and called it aioli, huh? And everyone's into it. That's 100% true. It's like yeah. it's like calling a sauce coulis, right? It just means you paid an extra dollar for it, really. <laughs> well, so also also you chose the, you chose the word hoagie? Yeah, let's talk about this. I I... It's not a sub. It's I feel like that's a... not part of my regional dialect cuz I'm from California, but also <laughs> 
I like saying hoagie. I'm a wordsmith, and I like you know. They call it hoagie. a grinder sometimes on the East Coast. No, no, no. Yes. Nope. I mean, I know they do, but my answer is no. You've never had a meatball grinder. No. Grinder. Who eats grinders? <laughs> I, I do. I eat subs, hoagies, and sandwiches there and tortas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Respect. Respect the yes. hoagies, people. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is a little bit in line with Kate Nibbs's recommendation last week. So for those of you who listened, we had Kate Nibbs in the show very briefly at the end of, of the program to talk about her, her great experiment with Apple Music and how after a little while she gave up Apple Music and she went back to Spotify. Um, my recommendation this week is to go back to a Garmin watch if you've been wearing an Apple watch. <laughs> now, <laughs> these are fighting words, I understand. And I do still really like the Apple Watch, which is different from what Kate had to say about Apple Music last week. I like the Apple Watch. I think it is incredibly thoughtfully designed. I think if you're living in the Apple universe, there, you know, there's nothing like it in terms of the integration and how you can see your messages and respond to messages and control your apps and all of that. I had this great hack going for a while where I would, like when I was in the shower, I'd wear the Apple Watch in the shower and then control my music from the the watch. I mean, it was pretty great, right? Mm-hmm. But battery life. Mm. It always comes back to battery life. And I've been doing a lot of outdoor stuff this winter and back to traveling a little bit again. And this Garmin, this Phoenix 5S, which I had written about years ago, uh, gave it like an Editor's Choice Award when I was at The Verge. I own it. It's just, it's great. The battery lasts for five days easily. I went back to wearing it at the start of the year and I haven't looked back. I really, really like it. And I've heard this from other people too. Like I know Adrian on our team is a huge Garmin watch fan. Um, you, Michael, you never wore smartwatches and then you started running and you got the Garmin. Right. Well, I have an act, I have a Withings Activite okay. steel, Fair which enough. is like kind of a smartwatch. Stripped but down I, Yeah, not watch. what most people would point at and say that's a smartwatch. But yeah, I wear a Garmin 735 XT. Yeah. And it's great. It does everything I'm sure you needed to do. It, and also it, they have these uh, transflective LCD displays. Uh-huh. I guess that's display display. but um, <laughs> and, and so they're easier to see in sunlight and they're not so power hungry. And um, I don't know, you can you can configure the screen so that you can see things like elevation um, uh-huh. right from, you know, one of the t- you can you can configure it to track all kinds of activities, snowshoeing, backcountry skiing, like yoga, sailing, whatever the hell you want. Um, it's it's pretty I don't know. I'm just a really big fan of Garmin watches. They have a sliver of the smartwatch market these days. Apple is clearly dominating, um, but it's I'm a fan. So here's my big question about mm-hmm. your your Garmin sports watch mm-hmm. usage. Mm-hmm. Do you have the notifications turned on? I do. And then I can't do anything with them. It's just a dumb watch at that point. Yeah. I see it come in. I see a Slack notification or an iMessage come in and I'm like, okay, I need to address that. There's no way to interact with it on this watch. I will also say I find myself taking this watch off more frequently when I'm headed into certain social situations, which I never did with my Apple Watch because it's bulk. Like the, the Garmin watch is like bulky and it's kind of like it, you, you can it's say not the ugly. most. You can say it's ugly. ugly. <laughs> it's not like not the most attractive watch. I, I don't. I don't think it's ugly. I think uh, most people in our social circle, I assume your social circle, would see it and be like, "Oh, it's a Garmin watch," and that says so much about you as a person, right? Right, and that's interesting too that the Apple Watch does not say so much about you if you're wearing an apple watch anymore like in the early days it did Mm -hmm. it was like oh you were a nerd you were like really into it or you were a tech reviewer (laughs) but but now like everyone has an apple watch you worked at apple 
which is <laughs> San Francisco. Right, I just right. assume that. <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway, that's my, I don't even know how much this thing costs anymore. I mean, there's so many um, Garmin watches. Let's see, I'm looking this up right now. Boone, you can keep in the uh, typing, typing, typing. The Phoenix 5S. All right, it's still not cheap. It's it's still, you can, let's see, you can, it looks like you can pick it up for as low as 400 bucks, but most places are listing it for 500 so you can buy, if you get the sapphire glass too. You can buy two um, Apple watches for the price of a and Phoenix then, Oh, I love when this happens. I go I like Googled this and the first thing that came up for news results was the Garmin Phoenix 5S is the fitness watch I don't want to take off. And it's dated March 30th, 2017, um, written by yours truly. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Um anyway, that's my recommendation. <laughs> my nice. very old recycled recommendation. Nice. <laughs> Mike, what's yours? Uh thank you for telling us what time it is. <laughs> <laughs> um my recommendation is a show. It's called The Dropout and it's on Hulu. You've probably heard of it. It's the story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos and it is a fictionalized episodic account of that story. Um I was really on the fence about watching it, uh, but I noticed that there were all of these shows coming out uh, that have to do with like things that were big in our world. Like there's Super Pumped, the the Uber mm-hmm. show. Yeah. Uh, there's We Crashed, which is the WeWork story. Um, then there's this one, The Dropout. I don't know why I selected this one first. Uh, just I think because I was like in Hulu for something else and I just clicked on it. Uh, it's trashy. It's not fantastic. But it is very funny. Uh, I really just like how over the top it is. There's one scene in particular. Um, I've been talking about this for the last couple of days. So excuse me if you've heard this. But um, there's a scene at the beginning of one of the episodes where Elizabeth Holmes is – she's so enamored by by Steve Jobs and by Apple and by the whole way that they present that company that she goes to one of the Apple stores the day that the first iPhone is released and you can buy it and there's this giant crowd of people outside the apple store and they're all like crying with joy and jumping up and down and screaming and cheering that the iphone is finally on sale and people are coming out of the store and they're like showing their iphone or holding it up and everybody's applauding and you know it seems ridiculous but it's easy to forget that like that was what it was actually like when the iPhone went on sale like yeah. 14, 15 mm-hmm. years ago. And she's one of those people that we all looked at and we're like, wow, these people really like the iPhone, you know? So it, it gives us this like fun little like snapshot of what sort of the, 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 the rosiness around technology was at the time. And also just like that halo of Apple and Steve Jobs that she fell under, uh, which is, was really recognizable to me as somebody who lived through it anyway. Um, I think new episodes come out every week now and it's a mini series. So I think you can, you can pop in and watch the first four or five right now. And then it's going to conclude, uh, I think at the end of this month, beginning of April. How do you feel about Elizabeth Holmes as a character and as a person, as you're watching this? Um, uh, it's difficult because, you know, I identify with her because it's Amanda Seyfried. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. You're not seeing Elizabeth Holmes. You're seeing Amanda Seyfried. Right. Uh, so it, it's not like an immersive show. It's not like I only see the people on the show as, you know, the characters. It's Amanda Seyfried and the guy from Lost, mm-hmm. you know, Saeed from Lost. So it's like I can't really get into it and really feel them as characters. It's more just about like the spectacle and kind of the fun of it because everybody in the show is a buffoon, you know, that you know that they all get duped. Do they address the blinking? 
Not yet. The blinking? Okay. As in like the lack of blinking? Right. Yeah. 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 There's subtle uh-huh. things about the voice. Right. Like we see her rehearsing the voice mm-hmm. in the show. Mm-hmm. I had a feeling, mm-hmm. yeah. We see her rehearsing the wardrobe. We see her rehearsing mm-hmm. the hair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I'm sure at some point it it happens. Watch just for that. Yeah. I wonder about these tech scripted series that are coming out now, the ones that you just listed, because I think there is, I'm probably overthinking this, but I, I think there is a danger of turning these people into caricatures of themselves mm-hmm. or feeling like that you're the lack of sort of a attachment or a distance from them as people who in many cases did real harm yeah. to their customers. And, and they've suffered consequences, right? Like Travis Kalanick was booted from Uber um, and, and that was like his company and his baby. And, he's still and, filthy rich. But he's, uh, right. And now he's, you know, whatever he's doing, goes Andrew Newman, and everything filthy else. Filthy rich. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth Holmes probably going to spend 20 years in jail. But right, right. Maybe and, I shouldn't and, laugh. And so now we're, and now like, right. And now these stories are like, enter- there's entertainment value in these stories, which uh-huh. is just kind of bizarre to me. It's, it's slow motion car crashes. Yeah. You know, watching these shows, that's what it is. And occasionally breaking the law. Yes. I mean, did break the law? That is the car crash. Did, did I ever break the law? law? No, not you. We yeah, work. no, did you? Did you not ask my the <laughs> <break the> law? <laughs> you'll, you'll, have to, you'll have to speak with my lawyer. <laughs> yeah, did we work break the law? That's a great, I don't, I mean, no, I just over leveraged. Yeah. And now it's crazy because everyone's going back to WeWorks or WeWork like spaces. Yeah. Yeah. The great RTW, the great return to WeWork. Ariel Pardes wrote about this for Wired this week as well, wrote she about did. these three shows, and she liked We Crashed the best. Yes, yeah, she did not have kind words for Super Pumped or The Dropout, but that's fine. I still think mm-hmm. there's there's plenty of uh, bad television out there that's way worse. So mm-hmm. We should also mention that, of course, Super Pumped, the author of Super Pumped the book, and who is also, I believe, a consulting producer or executive co-exec, he's <laughs> a producer, Isaac. is Mike Isaac, who yeah. was a member of Wired for a long time and was a co-host of the Gadget Lab podcast. Co-host yeah. on this show. On this very oh, show. Yeah. yeah. I elbowed him out. <laughs> it's a good book, though. That's it's a right. great the book. book is yeah. really good. Great book. Read the source material, everybody. Mm. Read John Carreyou. Read the 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 two folks who wrote the WeWork book. Elliot and Maureen. Elliot and Maureen. Yeah, and they read, came on the show as well. Read Mike Isaac. Yeah. Good recommendation, Snack. Thanks. Mm. All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Thanks for joining us, Kari. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by the indubitable Boone Ashworth. Goodbye. And we will be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.